If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn them to Joshua chapter 5 as we continue our Through the Bible study called Unravel. And this is about a 35-year series (laughs) from what I understand. Uh, But it's been tremendous working our way book by book through the whole Bible. I had some great meetings last week. It seems like every week I do. And uh, last week was packed with meetings. Um, This coming week is as well. And I was uh, reminded again and again of the joy that I have to be a part of your lives and to be able to meet outside of here on Sunday morning and just hear what God is doing in your lives and to see how this ministry is really taking root in people's lives, how it is really making a difference outside of Sunday morning. And that's huge because if a church only exists for this hour and a half on Sunday morning, then it's, it's in real trouble. But man, I drove away from some of those meetings this week and with individuals and with families and was just um, so thankful for, without me even prompting it or asking for it, to be able to see God at work in the lives of people, to see the way so many people here at LifePoint are on their own time, on their own initiative, are seeking out God and diving into his word during the week. So good for you guys. Keep it up. That way, if I get hit by a bus this week, everything can go on just fine. I mean, mourn for me a little bit, but (laughs) that was very encouraging. There was an encyclopedia salesman who was making his rounds in a neighborhood one day, and he knocked on one door one afternoon, and a little boy came to the door, and he said, well, good afternoon, young man. May I speak with your mother or father? And the little boy said abruptly, they ain't here. And the man said, now, now, young man, what about your grammar? And he said, she ain't here neither. I don't know if you're from north of the Mason-Dixon line, if that'll make sense to you. Ask somebody afterwards if it doesn't. So I say that because a couple of weeks ago, we were in Joshua chapter 2, and I had the wonderful joy of talking about Rahab the prostitute up here in front of all of you and your children. And I got some wonderful communication after that service from parents saying, thanks a lot, Phil. Our kids... uh, paid no attention to the rest of the sermon after that point. All they wanted to do was dive into what that word meant, and we had to explain it to them. Well, I'm all about fostering family communication, so you're welcome. And as if that's not enough, today we come to another topic that I am sure is going to spark a lot of discussion with children and their parents. But here's what I've noticed in my life is that preachers tend to avoid Joshua chapter 5 because it's a tad uncomfortable to talk about, and so they would rather skip right over it and move on to the, quote, exciting stuff. And while, look, I'm not comfortable talking about this, I would never want to avoid something like this for the sake of my um, ease because this chapter has a lot to say to us. Now, most pastors, as I said, skip ahead to Joshua chapter 6, where, God willing, we will be next week, because they love to talk about the walls of Jericho falling down. That's an exciting story. 
And while chapter 6 does give the exciting account of the walls of Jericho coming down, it's actually Joshua chapter 5 that gives the reason for why that happened. Now, we're just going to have time to cover about the first half of chapter 5, and then I'm, as we look at chapter 6 next week, I'm going to pick up the last little section of chapter 5 because it also provides a secondary reason why God did what he did in Joshua chapter 6. And I want to remind you um, of what has taken place just prior to chapter 5. In chapter 3, we saw how God miraculously held back the waters of the Jordan River when it was at flood stage so that all of Israel could cross over on dry ground. Then in chapter 4, they built a memorial out of stones for that event. And the purpose of that was so that all future generations would be able to see and remember God's mighty power and his faithfulness. In fact, the last verse of Joshua chapter 4 tells us the very reason God wanted them to build this memorial. Joshua 4.24 says this, He did this so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and so that you may always fear the Lord your God. And just as we saw back in chapter 2, I mentioned that we talked about Rahab. Rahab said that, you remember, all the people of Jericho had heard all about the mighty acts of God. They had heard how God had already destroyed these wicked, evil cities who rejected him, and how this news had filled the people of Jericho with fear. Now, here in chapter 5, as we kick this chapter off, We see how news about God's power is, again, going before the people of Israel in their march or their progress into the promised land, and how even the mightiest of kings, the most feared kings in the land, were already terrified of the Israelites and of their God. And there's a a reason for this. Joshua chapter 5, verse 1, let's pick up there. Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed. Their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the people of Israel. Now I'm going to cover more of this next week and the importance behind why God allowed this, but We need to remember what we've already been told many times. This land that they've just entered into now was filled with nations who had rejected God. They had heard that God's people were coming. They knew, as I said, that God had already destroyed other wicked cities and they were filled with fear. And the wrong way to look at that is to think, well, how cruel of God to fill these people with fear. But What's actually happening is this was God's gracious way to give them yet another warning that judgment was coming. And he was giving them time to turn from their sin and to turn to him. And that's what is now happening with Jericho specifically. But before all that happens in chapter 6, there's something very unexpected and very unusual that has to take place in Joshua chapter 5. Now, I also want to say, these events that we've been looking at and what we're going to look at today and next week, 
These events happened a long time ago. And they may seem so old and so distant that they don't really apply directly to our lives today. But I want to remind you that the Apostle Paul, referring to these exact events, reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave or lust after evil things as they did. And he goes on in verse 11 to say these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. So as we look at these verses together today, let's ask God to teach us spiritual truths from what we're hearing. This is far more than just history. These things were written down as examples for us to warn us not to go the way that these people went. So let's ask God to bring about lasting and meaningful change in our lives from what we're about to read today. So here in Joshua 5, the Israelites have now just crossed over the border into the promised land. They'd waited so long for this promise to be fulfilled, all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abram and promised him that this was going to happen. It's been centuries now. They've waited all those centuries, and then they were freed from Egypt, and then after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, the people are finally standing here in the promised land. And I just wonder if they were thinking, okay, Joshua, we made it. Here we are. What's our next military strategy? What do we do now? And I can assure you that of all the instructions these people might have expected to hear next, They did not expect to hear this. Verse 2 of Joshua 5. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel the second time. Well, good morning. (laughs) Here we go. They were not expecting to hear that. Joshua was a brilliant military strategist. He had proved himself in battle all the way back in Exodus And so surely they were expecting a General Norman Schwarzkopf or something speech to take place behind the podium with all the cameras clicking and everything, and here's what we're going to do. But that didn't happen. God said something to Joshua that was so far off plan, so far off course, that it must have taken the breath away of these people. Why in the world would God require this to be done now? I'm not being irreverent, but I'm just telling you, from a human standpoint, this is not a smart thing to do at this moment. You've just entered enemy territory. You've got fierce warriors ahead of you. You've got a a flooded Jordan River behind you. You can't retreat. You're out on an open plain. Your enemy is inside a walled fortress. And in a setting like that, the last thing you want to do is incapacitate all your fighting men by circumcising them and making them go through a painful, debilitating recovery process. Can you just imagine all the questions coming at Joshua now? Who's going to stop Jericho from coming out of their city when they know what's just happened and, and coming out and completely destroying us while all our soldiers are unable to fight? After all, uh, that was not a far-fetched idea. 
I'm pretty sure these Israelites knew their history, as Jews do. They must have known, surely, that this exact thing had already happened once before in history. Way back in Genesis chapter 34, the Bible tells us that all the men of the city were circumcised, and verse 25 of Genesis 34 says that while all these men were still in pain, some other men went in, quote, to the unsuspecting city and slaughtered every male. So there's a precedent for what is taking place here that does not hold up well with what God has just asked these people to do. So here in Joshua chapter 5, there must have been some very important reason why God commanded this to take place at this exact moment. Why would God give such dangerous instructions to his people? Well, there certainly was a very good reason, and here's why. And i just give you a brief recap of this. We looked at this many moons ago. Hundreds of years before this event in, in Joshua chapter 5, way back in Genesis chapter 17, God had established this thing called circumcision with Abraham to serve as a sign of his covenant with his people. Okay, here's a quick flyover of that. Genesis chapter 17, verse 7. God said, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And I will give to you and your descendants after you the land where you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Man, I love that phrase. You see that throughout the Bible, all the way, as I said once, to the end of the Bible, all the way at the end of Revelation. I will be their God, and they will be my people. It's beautiful. Verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And he goes on at the end of verse 13 and verse 14, and he says, So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And as we read those verses and many more that follow, as God explains and lays out the requirements of this lasting covenant, we see that this command of God was much more than just a casual instruction. It was much more than just a suggestion. It was a requirement. It was a command from Almighty God to his people that was to be carried out throughout future generations without fail. But what do we people always do? We always mess things up, don't we? As time goes by, we get busy in life, we forget what God has told us to do, we begin to turn our hearts away from God and we forget his commands. It happens to all of us. It even happened to Moses. Many, many years after what we just read in Genesis 17, you get to Exodus 3 where we looked at God in the burning bush calling Moses to go to Egypt 
to set his people free from the bondage of Pharaoh. And in Exodus chapter 4, when Moses is on the way to carry this out, something very bizarre happens. Exodus 4, 24. Now at a lodging place along the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Now if I'm correct, one chapter earlier, this is the man God had chosen to be his leader to lead the people out of bondage into the promised land. You get to chapter 4, and God's about to kill the guy. So can I just ask you in passing, does God need Moses to carry out his work? No, he does not. Does God need us to do anything for him? He does not. We are, this is in my human terms, certainly not in God's sight, but we're, we're dispensable. And yet God treasures us so much and longs so much to be at work in our lives, through our lives, to bring about his purposes, that he puts up with our nonsense. Now, as I've said many times before, there are lots of things in the Bible that took place that are not written down in Scripture. Imagine if every conversation between every person had been recorded, we'd have to have an entire library to hold the Bible. So thank God that he and his wisdom shrunk it down to give us a condensed version. But what we know for sure is that there are many, many, many conversations and events that took place between verses and between chapters. There's one place in Genesis you go from the last verse of one chapter to the first verse of the next chapter, that little white space in your Bible, 13 years of silence go by. Wouldn't you love to know what happened? And so I have no doubt that there were conversations that took place here between God and Moses before this event just seemingly happened out of the blue. Just as back in uh, Genesis chapter 4, when we see Cain and Abel bringing their offering. We're given no background to that. All we see is that God accepted Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's offering. Now, would God be acting unjustly and unfairly? Of course not. So what that ought to tell us is there must have been conversations that took place between God and Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel where God set forth his clear commands for what an acceptable offering was and what an unacceptable offering was. Otherwise, he would never have judged Cain unfairly on what he did not know. But that's not recorded in the Bible. And I'm convinced that the same must be true here, that there were conversations as Moses, I don't know when, but maybe as Moses was leaving the burning bush and getting ready to go, perhaps God said, hey, Moses, you remember, you have failed to obey me in one area. Maybe Moses said, I'll take care of it. But off he went on his way and still had not obeyed God in this area. Now, the verses that follow this bizarre verse in Exodus 4.24 tell us that the reason this happened was because Moses had never circumcised his own son. And he was in violation of the, the covenant command of God. You think God winks at our disobedience? 
See, today we have the Word. We open the Word of God and we read something and the Spirit convicts us. I don't have to tell you how that happens. You know. If you're a follower of Christ and you have the Spirit in you, you know. You hear a sermon, you read a verse, you you hear a song, something, and God convicts you and says, hey, take care of this thing in your life. And we go, yeah, I'll get to it. Eh, It's not a big deal. It's a big deal. If we are living in known disobedience to even something seemingly small that God has already revealed to us. We're living in disobedience to Almighty God. Does that cause us any pause at all? Does that make us tremble at all? God made it very clear in all the span of time leading up to this here in Exodus that any male in that day who was uncircumcised was outside of God's covenant. And there was Moses about to undertake this mission for God while he himself was living in disobedience to what God had already clearly commanded. And he got quite the sobering wake-up call from God. There was this encounter. There was some showdown. Perhaps Moses was still reluctant and rebellious in this area. And God said, I am going to kill you. You think I'm going to let you go and carry out my mission, and represent me when you still have disobedience in your heart? So this was sobering business to God, what we're talking about today. This was very serious, and it's now with that quick background and that context in mind that I want to come back to Joshua chapter 5. So let's read verse 2 again of Joshua 5, just to pick this up again. Joshua 5, 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel the second time. Now, quickly, when God says the second time, we're going to see here right now in the following verses, he's not talking about these exact men would be circumcised the second time, but he is pointing out that the previous generation who had come out of Egypt, they had all been circumcised, but their sons had not. And I think it's Verse 7 down there explains this a little bit more about it was the second generation who were not under the covenant. Verse 3, so Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gilbeth Hiraloth. Verse 4, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. So, as I said, all the males who came out of Egypt, they had been circumcised, but no one born since then had been. And folks, this should be a quick reminder for all of us of just how easy it is For not just one person, not just one family, not just one group, but for an entire nation to drift away from what they know is right. And these people, as we've seen in our studies, they weren't just hanging out in the wilderness off doing their own thing, singing kumbaya around the campfire. They were strictly following day by day, week after week, month after month, all the religious rituals. They were deep into the whole religious thing. They were there. Can I just put it in our terms? They were in church every Sunday. 
And week after week, they went to church, so to speak. And they sang the songs and they gave their offering and, and they served. And yet, during that time, an entire generation drifted away from God. We need to guard ourselves. This is why I've said a million times up here, God, don't ever let what we're doing here on Sundays become a blind routine for us. Just, well, I got to go do the church thing. It's Sunday. No. We better always hold precious what we're doing here. We better always highly value and treasure the fact that we have God's word in our hand, that we can meet freely, that we can teach freely for now. For now. You mark that down. For now. This will not last forever in America. These people clearly knew what they were supposed to do. But as the Bible points out numerous times, they were a wicked and disobedient generation. Now, may I just remind you of what I just said. This wicked and disobedient generation from a distance looked like the most religious people in the world. When foreigners crawled up to the top of the mountain and looked down at the Israelites there performing all their religious feasts and ceremonies, singing and dancing and praising Yahweh, they must have thought, wow, those people are close to God. Couldn't have been further from the truth. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. And I include myself in this. Just because we're here today doesn't mean a whole lot in the eyes of God if our heart is not really with him. It's very easy. It's very, very easy for us to be caught up in the religious routine and have the appearance that everything is okay and on track, but deep down inside we know we are a wicked and rebellious generation. You know one thing that affects pastors greatly, and I thankfully had someone warn me of this many years ago. He said, Phil, don't ever allow your study time for sermons to replace your own time with God. I was like, wow. I probably never would have thought of that. Be like, hey, I put 30 hours in this week in the books, so me and God are good. No, 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 not. Not. We each, boy, I'm getting off track, but I just I feel like I need to say this. We each individually must be pursuing God. I can't do that for you. These people knew what they were supposed to do. And on the outside, they were doing it. But on the inside, this whole time, 40 years, they were living in disobedience to God. And so now here they stand inside the promised land, just in the border of the promised land. And they're standing there with God's promises and blessings in front of them, and they're ready to go grab them. And God says, you cannot move forward and claim what I have for you until you first stop and consecrate yourselves by making this sin right before me. Last week we saw how before they crossed the Jordan River, they took three days and they were told to consecrate themselves. There's something very special and meaningful about that. But as I said earlier, this was 
in human terms, the worst imaginable time to circumcise all the fighting men of Israel. They're about to go into battle against Jericho, one of the most fortified cities and feared armies in the world at that time, as we'll see next week. And now Israel's entire army was out of commission, and they were completely vulnerable to the enemy. Why would God do that? Well, it's not just to deal with this sin of disobedience that we talked about. One of the reasons was because it was a reminder that victory doesn't ultimately come from man's strength, but from God's power. We see that with Gideon. We see it all the time in the Bible. God was saying, I'm going to fight for you, but you must have faith in me instead of in yourselves. And this, I think, is, is something you and I experience on a regular basis, even today. We're called to obey God's word, even though in our, our natural understanding, it would be better to do things in our own logical way. And so we resist that, or even if it's not something quite that severe. Maybe there are times we say, God, I really want to obey you, but what you're asking me to do doesn't make sense or it doesn't make sense right now. God says, obey, and trust me. But instead of looking to him, we look to our finances. We look to our current circumstances. We look to all of our resources, our current situation, and we say, this cannot be the right time to obey God. When we were starting this church, I remember... <laughs> I could have written a page of reasons why it was not the right time to do that. And some of these men here who were there knew. I've, I fought them. I resisted this. I, didn't, I don't want to do this. I mean, I, I do. I'm, that came out wrong. <laughs> like, I know you're going, wow, that's great, Phil. You make us feel good. <laughs> what I mean is this was not a gig I was looking for. You understand? I was, I was not looking for this. I'm still terrified of being up in front of people. This is not something I dream about doing all the time. Yet there's nothing else I would rather do right now because God finally got through my thick head that I'm never going to be at peace. I'm never going to find joy and fulfillment until I do what he's asking me to do, even if it doesn't make sense to me. See, there's no better place to be than where God wants you to be regardless of the circumstances. But I resisted this because I had a list of things in my mind of why this was not the right time, why I was not the right person. And on and on I went through that list. And rather than looking to God to say, God, I know you're calling us to do this. I will trust you. I began to look to these other things and make excuses. See, here's the thing. God doesn't just want obedience. He wants faith. That by obeying, we are trusting that what he's asking us to do is the right thing, even though it doesn't look like the right thing. If God just wanted stone-cold, mindless obedience, he could have created robots and programmed them to do his very bidding. That's not what God wants. Yes, he wants obedience, but more than that, God wants faith. In that moment of obedience to say, God, I'm stepping out. I'm obeying you, and I'm doing it by total faith because this doesn't add up to me. 
The Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Have you ever stopped and thought about that? If we're just blindly obeying, or obeying because, okay, just to get God off your back. All right, God, I'll do this. You're not pleasing God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So, so if you say, God, I really want to please you with my life, then God is going to give you plenty of opportunities that require faith so that your life can be pleasing to him. And for all these Israelite men to willingly submit themselves to this incredibly painful process of being circumcised, especially at such an inconvenient time, it was not only displaying faith and trust in God, but by doing this, they were also saying, I'm choosing to be marked as a permanent sign that I forever belong to God. You see, circumcision was a picture of cutting away the old life of sin. Joshua 5, 8, and 9 tell us this. Verse 8, when the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained in their places in camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. day. Gilgal means rolling or a rolling away. See, Egypt represented to these people their old life. It represented their enslavement to sin. And they had to be separated from that in order to follow God. Jesus said this very clearly in the New Testament. Anyone who wants to come after me and follow me, can I just wrap up all those statements he said in this? If you're unwilling to let go of anything in your past, you cannot follow me and be my disciple. I don't care what it is. Mother, father, son, daughter, husband, wife, houses, land, job, money, whatever. We cannot hold on to the past and follow God at the same time. And in that day, the outward sign of circumcision was something that God used to emphasize a far greater spiritual reality, spiritual truth. And that is that man's heart needed to be circumcised. Man's heart needed to have that old sinful flesh cut away and discarded. This is why the Bible speaks to all of us of the necessity of undergoing a circumcision of the heart. In fact, it's more than that. The Bible talks about circumcision of the lips, circumcision of the ears. It's, this, it's used as a picture to illustrate whether or not a person has cut away that old sinful part of them that is keeping them tied to who they used to be. It's not about just an outward symbol. It's about a spiritual cleansing on the inside. So why does this verse say that the reproach of Egypt was rolled away from them on that day? It's because, look, as we talked about a long time ago, by being circumcised, they were entering into a covenant with God. And the only way for anyone's old life of sin to be rolled away is for that person to be in covenant with God. And it's the same for us today. Don't miss this. We are not under that old covenant anymore. But the only way for the reproach and guilt of our old life of sin to be rolled away is for us to be in covenant with God. And today, that only happens when we are in Christ. 
when we've had our old sinful flesh cut away, spiritually speaking, and we're no longer of the flesh, but we are now of the Spirit, as Romans 8 verse 9 says so clearly. The book of Hebrews is, uh, as I've said, a, a remarkable book that will make very, very little sense to us unless we understand all this Old Testament stuff we've been talking about. And I've been trying to tie Hebrews into Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and now Joshua as we continue to go through this. But the book of Hebrews speaks again and again about how Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, a better covenant, which has replaced the old covenant. Hebrews 9.15 is an example. It says, Therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died to redeem them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now that old covenant, and we've talked about this and I can't get into it all today, but blood in the Bible is very significant because the Bible says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so that old covenant had to be established by blood. And this new covenant had to be established by blood also, except this new covenant was established by the blood of Jesus Christ when he shed his own blood on the cross. This is why at the Last Supper, when Jesus was with his disciples, he said in Luke 22:20, 20, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But listen, I say as we wind this down, a caution, it's not enough just to know about these things. Those Israelites knew the covenant. They knew it inside and out much better than we know our Bibles today. They knew the truth. They carried out all the religious rituals, but they had never actually surrendered their hearts and surrendered themselves in full obedience to God by allowing the reproach of their old life of sin to be cut away and thereby be marked as God's covenant people. So what about you? You go to church? You know the truth? You do all kinds of religious things? But have you ever actually surrendered yourself in full obedience to God? Has your old heart of sin ever been cut away? That won't happen by doing good things. It won't happen by attending church. It won't happen by giving money to the church. The only way you can be freed from the guilt and the reproach and the judgment of your sin is through the blood that Jesus Christ shed on the cross. Because that's when he took the reproach of your sin upon himself. That's when he bore the judgment for your sin in his own body, in your place. And it's by faith in his work on the cross that you can enter into that eternal covenant of redemption. One more, Hebrews 9.12 says it this way, He, that's Christ, entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing eternal redemption. Those Israelites thought, they assumed that they could just continue walking forward as they had done for 40 years 
they could just continue walking forward into the promises that God had for them, into the blessings and the protection that God had for them. God stopped them in their tracks, and he made it clear that he demands consecration. He demands that his people are walking in covenant with him. What about us? As individuals and as a church, are we hoping to go forward with God into the future he has for us and to be the recipients of his blessings and his protection? While all the while, our hearts are living in disobedience to him? God gives us many Gilgals along the way by grabbing our attention and saying, you are living in disobedience to what I've already commanded you. And we should know that God demands of us what he demanded of his people in Joshua's day, and that is to be marked as his covenant people, and that can only happen for us through the blood of Christ. So I ask you first this morning, are you in covenant with God? I don't mean have you gone to church your whole life. I don't mean have you won all the Sunday school ribbons for attendance. I don't mean do you know verses of Scripture. I mean have you ever been saved? Have you ever been born again? That spiritual transformation where Christ takes your old life of sin and removes it and gives you a brand new life in him. Has that ever happened to you, or are you just playing church? Are you just trying hard to be good? I would plead with you this morning, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, come to him today. Call out to him by faith. Accept the gift of salvation that he's already made available to you through his death on the cross by taking the judgment and the punishment for your sin upon himself. He took your place but he will not force you into covenant with him. He will not force you into heaven. I was talking this week with one of our guys from this church about those many verses in the Bible that talk about God has done all the work for us, but it's now up to us to believe or reject. Believe or reject. Are you in Christ today? I pray that you are. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart.